Hey, this is Micah Bosworth. I'm the pastor here at Ridgepoint, and this is our sermon podcast. I wanted to thank you for joining us today. Hope this is an encouragement to you. Hope it helps to build your faith. And I hope it helps you to see that God is working in your life. Enjoy the message. If you grew up like me, you probably loved watching uh, superhero films or superhero TV shows in general. Uh, and one of, the, one of the common tropes or the common ongoing plot points of a lot of the TV show superhero TV shows at least was uh, the whole episode, nothing was going right right? You, you probably have seen this where they do this, uh, and really it's a plot point in, in a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, movies and TV shows in general. It seems that the entirety of the show, there's like tension between characters, or there's a bad guy that's winning. Something is going wrong, like the entirety of the, uh, it's 45-minute show, uh, about 40 minutes of that, things are going wrong, right? Especially in the old uh, superhero TV shows, there would be nothing going right for like the entirety of the show, and then as it seems all hope is lost, right, it's just a hopeless state, all hope is gone, uh, the bad guy is about to kill people, the world is going to end, something is about to happen, what happens in like the last little bitty portion of the movie or TV show? Someone steps in and saves every, everyone, okay, right, or saves the world, and usually it's um, the, the, some cosmic superhero like Superman um, or Captain Marvel, someone, those cosmic ones are the ones that usually save the whole world uh, with the help of some of the others. Uh, people like uh, my personal favorite, Batman, and, and uh, people like that are mostly not saving the entirety of the world unless it's with their tech. They're saving people in general. But uh, in, in general, the plot points of all of those shows used to always be bad, 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 but then the hero comes, Okay. I bring that up because uh, not only in the book of Micah, but specifically in our chapter today, Micah kind of points out there are some bad things coming. And honestly, Israel, it's going to seem bad for a long time, (laughs) is really what he says. He says, but, but, verse 2, but there is someone coming. Okay, so look at it first with me, verse number 1, okay? I want us to see the contrast here. Verse number 1 of Micah chapter 5, it says this. It says, now gather thyself... In troops, O daughter of troops, he hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Now, verse 1, it's important for us to know. We know that uh, we, our, our, our Bible is absolutely and 100% inspired and preserved by God. Okay? So what I'm about to say is not in any way saying anything against that. Uh, chapters and verse divisions we're not inspired by God, okay? Uh, so there was, uh, especially Erasmus in the time when he uh, was making the, a lot of the Greek manuscripts, putting them together, divided some of them by verse and chapter, okay? In so doing, he inadvertently sometimes messed up, uh, if you read through, the thoughts of some things um, and, and, uh, and other, well, I'll just say it this way. If you look at a Hebrew Bible today, Verse 1 of chapter 5 is verse 14 of chapter 4, okay? Uh, it goes in line with the thought of chapter, what we have in the previous chapter. Uh, basically saying, you have some judgment coming, but I'm going to save you. And here's another tidbit of the judgment that is coming, okay? It's important to know that for this reason. If you think verse 1 and 2 just, boom, right together, go together, you might misconstrue verse 1 to be talking about Jesus, Okay, when it says smack, smack him upon the uh, cheek with a rod. Uh, but verse 1 isn't talking about Jesus. It's talking about the last king of Judah. The last king of Judah. In fact, if you look at uh, the, even the wording of the verse in verse number 1, 
and what takes place in Second Chronicles, uh, or actually it might be Second Kings chapter 25, toward the end of it, when it shows us the last king of Judah, Zedekiah, um, verse 1 of, of Micah 5 tells us that he hath laged siege against us, right? Go all the way to 2 Kings 25, when Zedekiah was king there. Babylonians come in, Nebuchadnezzar comes, they lead, uh, and they take siege, they lay siege to Jerusalem, all right? They surround it, no one's getting out, and a few people actually end up escaping through the, through the walls. They end up escaping through the walls of Jerusalem, running out, uh, among those being Zedekiah the king and his family. In the course of all of that, if you follow the story, in the course of all that, they catch Zedekiah, okay? They, t- they uh, end up catching him, the Babylonians do. They bring him all, over, all the way over to Ziblah on, um, before Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. And before King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, they slaughter all of his sons right in front of his eyes, okay? And then gouge out his eyes and take him into exile, into prison in Babylon, okay? Uh, essentially saying, the last thing you're going to be able to remember seeing is your children dying, okay? Uh, the, the, the wording of smiting someone on the cheek with a rod is uh, one of those Hebrew idioms as well that means to bring shame upon someone. So what, what Micah is prophesying here of is when Judah would be laid siege to by the Babylonians and that the judge or the king of Judah at that time, the last king of Judah, would be brought to shame, would be brought to shame. And as a result, all of Israel would be uh, feeling the burning of that shame to which their sins had brought them. So uh, it, it seems if you just read that and you especially cope, uh, couple it with a lot of what we just know in the previous chapters, it seems that Micah is just painting this picture of judgment that is a, a, a some, somewhat hopeless uh, situation. But, but what I love, and I think what most likely when they did that, when he put the chapter divisions in, most likely why he put verse 1 uh, with chapter 5 and those instead of the others is because you see the contrast between verse 1 and 2 that says, this is where it's going, but. Okay, this is where it's going, but. Look at verse 2 with me. Look at verse 2. I love this. What we're going to see in verse number 2, he says this, but thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old from everlasting. So Micah here says it's going this direction. There's going to be judgment. The king of Judah is going to be shamed. Israel, as a result, is going to feel the shame of their sins, what, is, uh, what has been brought upon her because of that. But don't lose hope. The ruler is coming. Okay? And what we're going to see as we look at this is that uh, Micah really outlines for us a few different ways, three, three ways that I have outlined in our message today that this Messiah, this king, this ruler that is to come will interact with his people when he comes. And so what we notice first of all in verses two through four is that when this king arrives, when this king arrives, he will save his people. He will save his people. It says, but thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now, we read that verse. Bethlehem means something to us, right? This side of history, we know Bethlehem. We go, Bethlehem is like the nativity scene. Bethlehem is the place that we celebrate every single December, we, we have whole sermon series on Bethlehem because of what took place there on this side of history. 
But on, on their side of history, as Micah is saying this, we've got to understand that Bethlehem was not some huge deal to them. In fact, uh, at this side of history, which, by the way, is 700 years prior to Jesus actually coming and being born in Bethlehem, that's a good amount of time ahead of time that uh, the prophets would proclaim and declare and predict the coming of the Messiah and where he would be. But 700 years before the nativity scene, before the shepherds, before the swatting claws, before the manger, to them, Bethlehem was just this small little village that was south of Jerusalem. In fact, Micah points out how small it is. He says, though you are small among the thousands of Judah, the thousands of cities in Judah, you are uh, but a little representation of it. They understood this um, to mean that out of this small little town, their Messiah would come. That out of this little town, their Messiah King would come. How do we know that they understood that this is what this verse is saying? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 2, well, oftentimes we call it the story of the Magi or of the wise men, another Christmas type story that we look to. You go back to it, the wise men come and they ask the, uh, King Herod, they say, where is he that will be King of the Jews? And he goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> and then they go, uh, well, let's ask the scribes and the Pharisees, the people that know the law and the prophets. And they ask them, they ask them, where would he be born? And they go, oh yeah, Bethlehem. They, they didn't go to Bethlehem with the wise men to go see if this was true, but they knew in their minds that Micah had prophesied that the Messiah, the king, the one who would be king of the Jews, the ruler of us, he will be born in Bethlehem. That's where he's gonna be. So they understood this to mean that they're, uh, king would come. But what I, what I love about Micah's verse, a lot of times when we use that verse, uh, this verse in the Christmas time, it's just to show that Jesus was prophesied to be uh, born in Bethlehem. But did you notice the end of that verse? The end of verse number two, what does it say? It says, whose goings forth have been from of old from everlasting. What Micah is saying here, Micah is saying this. He's saying that the one who would come would be one who came from before time. He would be a pre-existent one, but would enter human history from Bethlehem. It's very reminiscent of what John says in uh, John chapter number one. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is creator God, is what he's saying. All the way from the beginning, pre-existent. But later in that same chapter, he says this, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So uh, John even points back to what Micah is saying here that the one who entered earth in flesh in Bethlehem lived and existed before all of time. So Micah is saying this, this incarnation that will take place of God becoming man will take place in Bethlehem, but make no doubt it is almighty God who is coming. It is God who is going to come as a man. And what a promise they had to, to hold to, that the, there will be a time where Judah is, is in siege and the king will sh be shamed, but, but there is another king who will be coming. In verse number three and four, it says this. It says, therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand in the, uh, and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God. And they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. If you read these verses, as I, as I see it here, uh, specifically verse number three, there's, there's a twofold labor or travailing that it's talking about here of the nation of Israel. One is to give birth to the Messiah. 
Okay, so in the context, it's very clearly saying that the Messiah would come, uh, that uh, it's speaking to the fact that they would be given up to Babylon and then be under travail and the Messiah would be birthed, okay, that the Messiah would come. But within the context of chapters 4 and 5 here, it must also be speaking to the giving birth of the remnant of Israel during a time of labor called the tribulation period, or as the Bible also calls it, the a time of Jacob's trouble that is still in our time yet to come, okay? That there will be a time of travail for the people of God that, that, that the nation of Israel will be in travail, in trouble, and in trial, and out of that unbelieving Israel in time of trouble, there will come a believing remnant of Jews. Uh, and, and Israel, if you look at even in history, Israel, it's, they've been dispersed, and even today, many Jews are, are living scattered across the entire world, but one day, God will fulfill his promise to Israel. They will have their land. They will have their king. And when Jesus comes, he will gather them together again and he will lead them as the good shepherd that he is. That's what verse four talks about. No doubt this passage, verse four, two came to mind when Jesus said to the people what he said in John chapter 10. When he said uh, that I am the good shepherd, that my sheep hear my voice. When, every time Jesus says something, uh, about being a shepherd in the, in the Gospels. If you read that, no, they're thinking Ezekiel. They're thinking Psalm 22, 23, 24. They're thinking Micah. He's claiming to be that, that shepherd, the one who would come and would be our leader. So they knew that he was claiming to be God. And no doubt, uh, th- this portion of scripture even comes into play when in John chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says this. He says, other sheep I have, which I will bring. And there will be one fold and one shepherd. There will be one flock and one shepherd. When he's here pointing to the fact that there will be a time where Israel will have rejected their Messiah, that he will give them up, my, verse number three, that he will give them up and they will travail for a time. There's, there's a, a, still a travailing of the people of God that they are awaiting their Messiah to come. And, and one day, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will return again, and when he comes, he will fulfill his promises to Israel to bring together a believing remnant of the, of the people of Israel, and he will lead them as a good shepherd. And when he does, other sheep he has, which he will bring, and there will be one fold, one flock, and one shepherd, all of us who are not Jews, but are believing in Christ as our Savior, as our Messiah, King that we, will, we are those other sheep that he has, that he will bring and pull together as one flock and uh, under his one shepherd. So Jesus, he is the good shepherd, laying his life down for his flock, leaving them in the care right now of human leaders until he returns to lead them, as he said in John chapter 10. So we see, we see Micah pointing to the birthplace of Messiah and giving the people of God hope that one day, even though there will be a time of travailing, even though there will be a time of trouble and hardship, this king, this Messiah, Jesus, will come in and rescue them, save them from their troubles, and he will lead and feed them as their good shepherd. But then we also see in verse five and six that when Jesus arrives, not only will he save his people, but he will defend his people. He will defend his people. Uh, Verse number five, it says this, and this man shall be the peace. I was going to go on, but that's just such a good statement right there, right? And this man, Jesus, will be the peace. He will be the peace. The Hebrew word, in fact, the Hebrew word there for peace 
If you look up the Hebrew word for peace, it has such a more full meaning than we think of peace. When we think of peace, we think of like free from disturbance, right? I, I want peace and quiet. So I got to get away from the kids that are going to disturb my peace. That's what we think of when, pe- when we think peace. And when they're thinking peace, okay, when they're thinking peace, this Hebrew word here has such a complete meaning. It means complete, full, at, uh, at, sat- at satisfaction with and taking care of. It's like a full meaning of peace. There is perfect peace in so many ways. They are fully satisfied and taken care of. And, and they will have to find peace in no other. Jesus, their Messiah, is the peace. He is their peace. It, so many times we try to find peace in so many other places, right? We try to find peace in, in our ambitions and the ways that we're going to uh, go up the corporate ladder or in uh, our own identities that we've structured and in our world, especially in identities that they put upon themselves and they try to find fulfillment in that, but they will never fully know completeness, fulfillment, satisfaction, and peace unless he is their peace. So good, good application for us, just a side note there, right? That he is the, the peace, the way that we find peace. But uh, how does Jesus bring peace to his people? Look, continue with me, okay? How does he bring peace? When the Assyrian shall come into our land, and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall, be, uh, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders." In, those, in these verses, it, it, it's certainly speaking about the Assyrian Empire. Uh, it, it uses the word Assyria, but also in the context of the passage, uh, talking about the, the later kingdom that would come, Assyria and the land of Nimrod are references really to all nations in every age that oppose God's people, Israel. In fact, this could even be referenced to, if you read it, uh, this could be in reference to the time in the last days, when foreign nations will come together to try to wipe Israel out and Jesus defends them. Micah may have very well caught a glimpse of what we know as a northern invasion of Israel, right? Who was north at this time in their history? Assyria was. So he may have even seen the future northern invasion that they would come in and try to overtake Israel and uses Assyria, the empire of that day to the north, to describe this, but Micah assures his people that though many will make themselves the enemy of God's people, the king will one day come into their land and tread upon their borders and defend them and raise up leaders to defend and shepherd them. That, that one day Jesus himself will stand again on the land of Israel and lead them and shepherd them and defend them and raise up leaders and shepherds for them. And I, I think of that and I'm, I'm just thankful that the Lord defends us, aren't you? <laughs> that the Lord will defend us. We have enemies that come up against us. Israel has their enemies that come up against them, but, but Jesus has defeated the enemy for us. We have the victory through him. Paul said it this way in his letters to the Corinthians, that Jesus would reign until he put all enemies under his footstool, under his feet, the last of which is death. He said one day Jesus will even put to death death itself. He will put it to death. And Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He defends us. 
He's giving this promise to his people that there will be one day when nations upon nation will come up against you, but I, your Lord, will stand foot in your borders and I will defend. I will defend. I'm so thankful for the Lord's defense. That song that we sing, uh, uh, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. That, that, I think it's the second or third verse. I, I start weeping almost every time we sing the words, To this I hold my shepherd will defend me. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. I, through the deepest valley he will lead. The night has been won, I shall overcome. Why? Not, not I, but through Christ and me. And I, every time we sing those words, I, I just think how wonderful it is that the Lord defends us. The Lord is our defense. But not only does he defend his people now, but one day all enemies will ultimately be defeated for us by Christ. When he shows up, when he arrives, it won't even be a battle. In fact, you look at that last battle of all the people that are coming up against his people, and all it takes for him is one word. One word, and all of them, blood rising to the level of like the middle of horses, right? That whole scene. I mean, it's not even a battle. He just speaks and wins the battle, defends his people. When he shows up, when he arrives, he will defend his people. What great hope that Micah is speaking into the lives of God's people. When, when the king comes, he will save his people. And when the king comes, he will defend his people. But then we see in the last portion of this chapter that when the king arrives, when he comes, he will transform his people. He will transform his people. The first way that we see that he will transform his people, Israel, is that he will transform them in victory. Look at verse 7 through 9 with me. It says, And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. Along with his defense, he will instantly transform them in victory. This, this uh, hurting, travailing, uh, r- little bitty remnant of Jacob, little bitty remnant of God's people that looks small and helpless as they obey God in all one, sm- uh, one swift action, God will be victorious and strong and, and with them will raise them up to be a nation that is victorious and strong like a lion who pounces on its prey and no one can deliver the prey from it. He says, I, I will transform you in power. You will be victorious. You will be powerful. You will be, uh, you will be uh, transformed as a nation in victory. But then, not only that, he speaks to the fact that he will transform them not only in victory but also in surrender. He'll, he'll transform them in surrender. I want us to see that in the last few verses here, verse 10 to the end. It says this, and, I, and it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and I will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds, and I will cut off witchcrafts out of thine hand, and thou shalt have no more soothsayers. The graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee, and thou shalt no more worship the work of thine hands. And I will pluck up the groves out of the midst of thee, so I will destroy thy cities. 
And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. That last statement is saying, uh, it's like a bookend. He says, I will destroy your enemies. At the end, he says, I will destroy the heathen. That's the foreign nations that oppose him. And he says this, all of those who have not heard. That, or another way you could say that is, all of those who will not hear me, will not obey me. He says, I, w- I will take care of them. I will take care of them. But also, I need to take care of you, my people. He says, I need to transform you my people. I'm going to come and I'm going to cut out some things. I'm going to rip out some things. I'm going to destroy some things within you. I'm going to put all of the wickedness out of you. He says, I'm, I'm going to, uh, like a surgeon, it seems, come, come and cut out a mass, a, a cancer in his people that is harming them. They've been holding on to these things that are destructive to them. It, it literally says, I will cut them out of your hands. These things that are, they're holding on to for what they think is stability and strength that they're holding on to these things that are destructive to them they, and, and that are keeping them from surrendering fully to God and his leadership. And God's saying, I will cut those things out of your hands. We, we call this work in our lives, we call this work in our Christian lives, sanctification, right? Sanctification. The process by which God molds us and shapes us to be more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, his son. That sometimes that requires pruning, some cutting away of things in our life. Sometimes that requires uh, getting some things out of our lives so that we may fully surrender to him. In fact, Ephesians tells us that uh, Christ does this specifically by the washing us with the water of the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. As we obey him, and walk in his word, we will find ourselves being sanctified, being transformed, being changed to be more like Jesus. And that's, that's a lifelong process. And that's sometimes a painful process. That, that we go through life and the Lord says, nope, that, that needs to go, it's hurting you. You go, but I love it, <laughs> right? And, it, and, and he says, yeah, but it's, it's hurting your relationship with me. And sometimes there's things that have to be pruned out and sometimes there's things that have to be added to our lives in order to sanctify us. But man, I've noticed in my life that work of sanctification, the Lord is so loving in how he does it. I I remember there are things that even uh, as I look back in my life, uh, there were times in my life uh, as a Christian that I was praying, Lord, take this thing away from me. Why am I struggling with this thing? I can't believe, and, and I know you want me to be better and I'm, I'm struggling with something and, and he's just working on me slowly but surely and, and I'm getting a little bit more like Jesus every day as I follow him through his word and then there were times where there were things that I was struggling with like uh, anger and stuff like that that there was one day that I'm just, I'm just sitting there and I'm like, when did God take that away from me? <laughs> it just like happened as I was walking with him in his word. God, he's, he's here pointing to his children and saying this, there will be a time where as you come believe in me and I defend you and I set up the kingdom, there will be a time I'm gonna get rid of everything that you're trusting in, okay? I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to transform you to be a people not only in victory, but a people in, of surrender. Surrender to me. This is the transforming work that God is promising to do in his people Israel when the believing remnant is brought into the millennial reign of Christ. And these are, these are some great promises of hope that God is giving his people. Some great promises. But it's interesting to me, it's interesting to me 
that if you study out the story of the Bible, if you study out the story of the Bible, when Jesus first came, they missed it. They missed it. They, they knew where he would be born, right? They knew where he would be born, but they missed it. They, they saw him, they saw him, and because of prophecies like this passage, I believe even, they had so ingrained in their mind what Messiah would look like. Like, he, he will be a reigning king who tears out any government that is oppressing us. And they had that so ingrained in their mind, this passage, that is, that is a promise that will be fulfilled for them, that he will bring them in victory and power and overthrow anyone that is trying to oppress them. That he will one day do that, but they had these, these types of pictures so ingrained in their mind that they missed the pictures of his suffering. And they missed the pictures of his uh, coming and dying for the sins of mankind. They missed the suffering servant passages because they were so nationalistic in their pride. They were like, we're Israel. We're the people of God. So in their mind, it just made sense. We're, we're set apart. We're God's people. No wonder when the Messiah comes, he's gonna lift us up in pride. It is essentially what they were saying. He's gonna lift us up in victory, but it wasn't just he's done the work. It's we're Israel. He's gonna lift us up. So when Messiah did come as a suffering servant who would come to suffer and die for the sins of all mankind, they missed it because they, in their pride and nationalism, thought this is what Messiah will be. They missed it when he came. If I can challenge us with one thing as we read this portion of Scripture and see what is coming, I would say this, friends, don't miss it. If I could challenge us with one thing, I would say don't miss it. Don't miss it. Jesus he came to save his people from their sins. That's what his name means, Jesus. And the angel came and said, you will name him Jesus. He said, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Jehovah, Yahweh, God is our salvation. His name literally means he will save his people from their sins. And he did come to save his people from their sins. And if, if you're here today and you've never accepted him as your savior, let, let me say this, friend. Don't miss the opportunity to accept him. Don't miss the opportunity to come to him in faith. He came. He did come. And when he came, he suffered and died for your sin and for mine so that we might not have to pay the penalty of sin, which is death, eternal separation from God. Rather, he wanted to die in our stead that he might give us a gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I, I, I'm imploring you, if you've never made the decision to accept him in faith today, don't miss it. Don't miss the opportunity. Come to him in faith. If you do know Christ, you say, I, I have accepted him in faith. I, I, I am saved. Then my, my call is still this. Don't miss it. <laughs> because Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Look to that blessed hope with assurance. What he has promised in this passage and in multiple passages all throughout scripture is that he will come. And that all that he says will, uh, will happen when he comes will come to pass. And we have a, a surety from all of the prophecies that we've already studied that have come to pass to look toward the prophecies that have yet to come to pass and say, I believe it. I won't miss it. I'm looking to it. I'm looking toward that blessed hope and looking toward his appearing. Don't miss it. But also, as we look to his glorious appearing, I also want to say this. Don't miss it, friends what he's doing right now. Yes, he did come. 
Don't miss the opportunity to accept him. Yes, he is coming. Don't miss the, uh, the hope and assurance that that brings in your life as you look to it. But also, friends, don't get so sidetracked on things like that that you miss what he's trying to do in your life right now, which is the work of sanctification. He is wanting to transform you. Don't get so hung up on the past or so worked up about future events that you miss what he is doing in the here and now of your life. Because as we said last week, yes, the kingdom is in the future. But every time that Jesus spoke of it, he spoke of it in the here and now, in terms of here and now. So as we await his coming, don't miss the kingdom work he wants to do in your life now. Surrender to his working in your life to transform you, to mold you to be more like Jesus. Because the truth is, when the king arrives, when Jesus steps in, things change. When, when the Lord steps into a person's life, when he arrives, no matter how hopeless the situation was, things change. It might be hopeless. It might seem that hope, all hope is gone. But when he arrives, but, that word there, but, the one who is coming, he changes things. He saves people. He defends and works on behalf of his people. And he works on and in his people. So as we study this, friends, don't miss it. Look to him for his salvation. Hope in him for defense. And surrender to him for transformation. Thank you so much for joining us. A special thanks to those that give generously to our ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. For more information about our ministry, check out our website at wenatchechurch.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe. You can share it with your friends. Hit the share button or take a screenshot and share it on your social media. And tag us at Wenatchee Church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.